Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I'm your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and we're going to talk today about a subject at the intersection of three of the most difficult topics in U.S. culture, sex, religion, and race. And here to help us navigate those tricky waters is one of the U.S.'s foremost black intellectuals, Dr. Brittany Cooper, who is, among other things, assistant professor of women's and gender studies and Africana studies at Rutgers University. She's a black feminist theorist who specializes in the study of black women's intellectual history, hip hop, feminism, race, gender, sex. You probably have seen her on the much missed Melissa Harris Perry show. You've read her on Salon. You've also probably read her or you should if you haven't at Crunk Feminist Collective, which is the site that she co-founded. And I just love both the passion and the rigor and the self-knowledge that she brings to the conversation. She's just really fucking smart. (laughs) (laughs) So, Brittany, thank you for coming back on the show. Yes, glad to be back. We like to warm up with a little lightning round of questions. So the first one is, what's been making you the happiest this week? What's been making me the happiest for the last three weeks uh, has been Lemonade, Beyonce's Lemonade. Yes. So I'm still happy about that. Excellent. I think that happy is going to last for a long time. What's the best sex advice you ever received? The best sex advice I ever received was from my grandmother, who told me, girl, you need to get some. So <laughs> <laughs> I was mortified, but it turns out she was right. And so I'm so grateful to her. That's amazing. Thank you, Brittany's grandma. <laughs> yes. And that has inadvertently led us to this whole conversation. Absolutely. Yes. What's the sex or sexuality related news that's been making you the maddest or saddest lately? I'm really saddened to hear that Africa Bombada, one of the founders of (sighs) hip hop, molested scores and scores of young men in the 70s and 80s, and that lots of people knew about it and covered it up. He's iconic to hip hop culture, and it's so sad that he used that position of power to do irreparable harm to all those young men. Yeah, and it's also enraging the way some folks have been handling it. Absolutely. The move to defend these powerful men, particularly Black men, even when it's so clear that they're predators, is a thing that simply must change. Mm. 
Yes. What's the biggest sex myth that you once believed but don't believe anymore? Mm. I think I believed all of the foolishness about the value of virginity. And because I grew up in a Christian family and a Christian community, you know, I, I just subscribed to the idea that not saving myself for marriage was one of the worst things that I could do and was a way to ruin my life. And turns out that I've had lots of sex in the interim and my life is fine. So, I, you know, <laughs> so I've managed to disprove the myth. Your life seems pretty great from here. Yeah. Yeah. Who's one of the bravest people that you can think of who's working on unscrewing up the sexual culture? I really am digging the work of Candace Zinbo, who's a graduate student at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary, but also one of the earliest allies that I found when I tried to make some moves myself around sexuality. Say her name again. Her name is Candace Bimbo. In this moment, folks are talking about her because she did the Lemonade syllabus about the Lemonade oh, album. Yes. But we've known each other for about five years and we met in the context of me doing the first post that I did around the church and sex at the Crunk Feminist Collective. Well, and that's a perfect transition. We are done with our lightning round. You survived it. Awesome. Um, <laughs> to talk about sort of how do we open into this conversation? I feel like I should disclaim for everybody here, like I am a white Jew, right? Like I feel like I'm way out of my own knowledge base here. So forgive me if I ask dumb questions, but I, I have been doing my reading anyway. Yeah. So you wrote for Crunk Feminist, I think in 2011, something called Single Saved in Sexin? Yes. So talk about that and how you came to write that, because that's kind of where the conversation got rolling for you, if I'm correct. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a, like I said, a very conservative Christian community. My mother was actually not particularly conservative. She had been a teen mom. She was very pragmatic about sex, you know, letting me know that I could have birth control as a teenager if I needed it. But because I was working class, I was very invested in educational achievement. And I didn't want to repeat being a teen mother in the way that my mom had and the way that she had struggled. And that class striving really dovetailed a lot of the conservative Christian theology that you hear. So I really had all of this guilt around sexuality. Like I had a fairly normal life as a teenager in terms of like, you know, fairly regular sexual experiences. But what I also had was incredible levels of guilt, good old fashioned evangelical guilt of seeing myself as a sinner because I was just engaged in routine forms of sexuality with mm. uh, with boys, right? So fast forward many years, I actually really tried to live my 20s in this way, like being celibate. I was celibate for most of my 20s. And when I wasn't being celibate, in my 20s then I was, you know, having sex with my boyfriend at the time and then and dealing with all of this guilt. Ugh, that sounds exhausting. Yeah, no, it was, it was totally exhausting and anxiety producing. And I got to 29 or so. And the thing that happened is that one of the women in the Crunk Feminist Collective, my good friend Robin, and I were out and, you know, we were talking about sex and sexuality. And I think I was ready for a change. Robin also grew up in the church, went to church. And, you know, she just looked at me and she goes, girl, the Lord knows you want to get some. And I thought it was so deliciously irreverent to say, like, <laughs> you know, I was like, that is very radical. And yet it is not untrue. Okay. So it was like, she gave me the permission that I needed to have a grown woman's sex life. And I needed a grown up theology to think through that sex life. I'm nothing if not a problem solver. So once I made this choice that I was like, all right, who's going to give it to me? Let me see who is available for my sexual liberation to happen. Uh, <laughs> and so, 
you know, some some good uh, candidates appeared. I mean, some good candidates and some not so good candidates. Well, that's life. Yeah. And then probably in 2011, I decided that I didn't want to hide this part of my life. Like I had also, as I was, you know, working through it, had seen all of these other girls that I went to church with who were around the same age, who were doing the celibacy thing, were miserable, but didn't have a theology that would help them to think about it differently. And the ones who were having sex felt all this guilt. And I was just like, can we, you know, I don't like to use the metaphor of coming out of the closet, but can we get real about this? Can we be honest with each other? Can we be transparent? Uh, and so I wrote Single, Saved, and Sex, and I actually wrote it anonymously. And when I did, the shit hit the fucking fan. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the questions on my list here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, in 2011, they were not happy at all. I got dragged and called. Somebody told me that I had been given over to Beelzebub. Whoa! So... <laughs> That's intense. Oh, yeah. No, it was it was the comment section was absolutely vicious. There was a, a minor blogging war against me by all of the black girls who had Christian blogs. Folks were, you know, like you've been given over to a reprobate mind and, you know, you have been led into the hands of Satan and you're going to experience divine retribution for these things that you're saying about sexuality. It was an intense moment. And I was for at least one weekend out of that during that time period on the sofa of one of my CFC homegirls crying, just like, I can't believe people are so mean. Like, I'm not demonic. I didn't know. But the thing I came to realize was that folks were speaking to me from a space of fear. All the caricatures of church, right? All the reasons why people avoid church people like the plague. <laughs> I was like, this is why no one will talk to y'all because you sound crazy and you don't have to. Can I break into parse some of this for like someone who's not at all part of this world? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I know that there's the Bible and there's the church and those aren't the same things. So how much of that negativity toward what you talk about as a grown woman's sexuality, mm. how much of that comes from the Bible mm. and how much of that comes from the black church? So there are some Christians who read this with a different kind of interpretation and who think of the Bible as something that we can be in conversation with and that we have the right to dialogue with and disagree with. And there are other Christians, namely evangelical Christians, who think that the Bible is a rule book for how we should live for all time. And I grew up as an evangelical Christian in the Black church. And much as I was saying before about how I grew up as a working class girl with particular aspirations. And so there was a way that my conservative understanding of the Bible dovetailed my aspirations. The same thing is true when you ask this question about the church versus the Bible. The Black church historically has been an institution who one of their jobs, given the history of Black people in the U.S., has been to restore Black dignity, to restore respectability, respectability to Black Respectability, right. That's yeah. right, right. To restore a sense that Black people are moral beings who are good citizens. And so they have found great fodder for that in the ways that they use the Bible. So using the Bible for conservative interpretations like remain chaste, pure, moral, upstanding, have heterosexual families where you have the children in wedlock, that both pleases God and also makes you look like a good American citizen. The church has therefore used the Bible to propagate a kind of moral interpretation 
that was designed basically to kill two birds with one stone is what Mm. I'm saying. You know, to make you seem morally upstanding in the eyes of God, but also to make you seem morally upstanding in the eyes of the American populace uh, in a world where that wasn't conceded for black people. And so what you have is a double burden, right? There are white evangelical Christians too who believe all of the things that I'm saying about the Bible, but black evangelical populations also labor under the idea that black, you know, like when we think about sexuality, that black people are inherently sexually immoral and lascivious and out of control and having lots of babies that they, you know, can't take care of. So then Christian morality becomes a way to solve that particular problem, apparently. Right. Did the black church, black church leaders come up with that themselves or like I what I, I hear echoes of what white evangelicals are doing in places like Uganda right now. Right. So yeah, black folks on plantations went to churches where they had white pastors who told them, you know, slaves, be kind to your masters. The word says that you should forgive and you should turn the other cheek. So some black Christians interpreted that as being meek and mild and working hard and proving that you were a good person. Others like Nat Turner interpreted as a call for revolt that if white people didn't act in this manner, then why should black people act in this manner? So there were all kinds of dissent. But look, I also think that it bears noting that this has changed over time. So in the 60s and 70s, if you're thinking about the black church, the black church of Martin Luther King, for instance, it's much more of a church that's focused on outward issues of sin, like, uh, you know, racism, right, or uh, sexism or militarism. So there's a moment where the black church is not interested so much in this kind of regulation of individuals. But I didn't grow up in that time period. I come up a couple of generations later where the black church has turned inward again to this sort of inward moral regulation. I mean, it's after the Moynihan report, you know, it's after Reagan. It's Well, it, it maps with the rise of neoliberalism, which told us all that our problems are individual instead of that's systemic. Right. That's yeah. totally right. That's perfect. So the Republican party says personal responsibility. The church says, don't be a sinner. And one of the ways to not be a sinner is to not have sex outside of a heterosexual marriage. And the problem is that they then tether that narrative to like all of these bad social consequences, right? Like that every bad thing that happens to you is because God is not pleased with you because you have the nerve to be getting it in. And so that's what I grew up hearing, which is why my mom didn't even have to be so hardcore around it because I was just like, I want to have a good life and I don't want to struggle. And so, you know, I'm just going to be a good chaste Christian and God will send me a wonderful man and we'll live in the suburbs and have three kids. Like, girl, I had the whole... I kind of want to give, like, younger Brittany a hug. (laughs) (laughs) I needed it. I so needed a hug. Many (laughs) hugs. Like, (laughs) you know, but I really did fear that if I didn't follow these rules that my life would fall apart, that God would be mad at me, that I was setting myself on the path to failure and that all manner of random social maladies would befall me uh, because that's what I heard in church. And I think the thing that helped me to start to make the shift was in this version of my life that I thought I would have, you know, I was going to meet my husband at 24 and marry him by 26 and have my first kid by 28. You know, sometimes you have these sort of heterosexual fantasies that are really a problem. And so when I got to be 24 and 26 (laughs) and 28, and not only was I not married, I didn't even have a prospect. (laughs) Right. It forced me to rethink my theology. It forced me to rethink 
what God was doing in my life, you know, and somewhere along the way there too, I had discovered feminism. And so I had a critique of patriarchy and all of a sudden, you know, I started to see the ways that what folks were calling good Christian theology just sounded troublingly like the kind of patriarchy that we were critiquing in all of my graduate seminars. Right, because black men don't grow up with the same pressures. They do not. They do not. They, You know, first of all, not only are black men, you know, like most men not being regulated around sexuality, but black preachers are notorious. Like black preachers in the black church, black male preachers have a notorious reputation for being straight up hoes. Like I won't even be nice about it. Like they just straight up are, you know, they have lots of women throwing it at them and they're very often partaking of it while standing up in the pulpit, telling people not to have sex before marriage. And they are absolutely getting it in every which way they can. And it's like this dirty little secret. That's not really even a secret. And my dad's a preacher, you know, but thankfully not, not on the hoe chase like that. And one of the things that I, you know, said to him was how do the, how do folks sleep well at night because don't they feel like God is going to punish them or something that he was he just looked at me and he said, they sleep very well at night. And that let me know that I must be doing something wrong. Mm. I must be thinking about something wrong. So all of those things just necessitated like a rethinking. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So tell me how you think about God and sex now. Mm, Yeah, I think one of the shifts for me around God was coming to understand God as a friend, as a homegirl or a homeboy, as someone who is in my cheering section and wants to see me do well and ultimately cares about me and cares about my well-being and not someone who is pressed around rules and regulation. Once I could see that version of a God, then everything was on the table again. Then all of a sudden I felt freedom to go out and to try to pursue intimate relationships that make sense for me. And the other thing it really did for me was it helped me to stop being so focused on marriage as my endpoint because I'm hella independent. I've always lived on my own. I'm not interested in being ruled by anybody, not interested really in sharing a bank account with anyone, not interested in like having to answer to anybody about my life other than the people that I deem that I should answer to. And so I was trying to fit marriage as a mold over a life that in many ways does not fit the bounds of a traditional marriage in any way. You know, I moved all over the country. I'm rarely home. When I am home, I'm somewhere with head stuck in a book or writing something. And so very much needing my solitude. And so there are ways in which those kinds of practices or that way of living can be hard 
on a marriage. Once I stopped tethering sex to marriage, then I stopped being so worried about marriage. If it happens, yay, maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. That that your focus on marriage was actually a focus on getting your sexual needs met. Absolutely. Thought that was the only mode that I thought I had for expressing sexual dis- needs and desire. What I love is that it freed me up to think far more robustly about how to build a partnership that would work for me, what that partnership would look like, and whether it really needed to be a marriage or whether what I really wanted was a series of lovers, which is entirely possible given my personality, you know, that... Because <laughs> maybe I didn't want to look at the same person for the rest of my life. I mean, you know, who knows? Life is long and strange. You might find someone <laughs> that'll make sense, but you don't need to live for it. That's right. But being able to have that as a set of possibilities was the thing that was awesome to me because I knew young women who were so pressed to get married because they just wanted to have sex. That's a good way to marry the wrong person. That's right. And I know a lot of those marriages that didn't work out. And one of the things that was interesting was when I wrote the post for the CFC, I had women to say that, right? I ha- There were women who came to the comment section and who said things to me like that, like, you know, I wish that I had had this three years ago when, you know, I married this guy that I waited for, but we weren't really compatible. The sex was terrible. And they talked about how because they had suppressed sexual desire for so long that when they finally, you know, were in a marriage where it was supposedly acceptable, they couldn't just flip the switch on. Right. And all of a sudden become these sexy, you know beings in marriage and that for and several women talked about the ways that it had ruined their marriages all of the assumptions that the church had instilled in them around what a proper marriage and a proper sexual relationship ought to look like and if I can be really real about it it's taken lots of practice to have a really fulfilling sex life mm-hmm. talk about that yeah yeah you know like practice and you know a few different partners and some adventures along the way like it has really taken some time to figure out what actually works. I don't know that I would have been able to figure that out in the bounds of a, of a marriage. And I feel like when you ask those kind of questions, it's like the one or two sex Bible studies that they do at the church that, you know, mm-hmm. that they tell you like, oh no, you're going to be with this person forever and you'll have a whole lifetime to figure it out. But it's like, what if you're a size queen and you're dealing with a dude that is not, <laughs> you know, well endowed? Or what if you are just with a dude and he never gets his stuff together? Like he, you know, his head his as as my good friend Susanna would say his cranial maneuvers are not together uh like what <laughs> you know or what if he doesn't see you as a full human being who also needs pleasure right that's like, right that's right because maybe he has really jacked up ideas about what sex is for too that's the other thing is that it has allowed me to when I have wanted to not at all times but it has allowed me to make sex like a legitimate project like a legitimate pleasure project where I get to figure out what works for me and what kind of arrangements in terms of partners work for me and then and then literally just mechanically like what are the things that actually bring me pleasure I love the idea of you researching this like as rigorously as you research all your other stuff oh absolutely (laughs) oh oh, totally totally there have been trips with the homegirls to the sex shop yes I've got books and manuals and you know all of the things you know it's so funny I said to somebody one time when I was sort of just getting started I was like I haven't had a lot of sex but I've read a lot of books about sex (laughs) (laughs) there's only so much you can read in the books that's right then you gotta try it out you gotta try lab work that's right lab work is required So have you found a welcoming church that sort of encompasses some or all of your new relationship to 
sucks. Yeah, yeah. I go to St. Paul's Baptist Church in Philadelphia. Shout out to my pastor, Leslie Callahan. And what I like is that you get a kind of traditional worship experience there. Like, you know, you get the good music, but you get really progressive theology. So my church, you know, we have queer couples at church. My pastor is a single woman who adopted a daughter. So there's not this pressure to get married or to build a heteronormative family. There's not... You know, there's not any sort of preaching from the pulpit about like sexual regulation. And there's a real just honoring of people as grown folks with bodily autonomy and a reading of of the Bible that allows folks to see the complexity of the relationships manifested there. And even when we did the Black church sex conversations a couple of months ago, my pastor actually came to listen to the conversation. So that was really cool. So let's talk about that. You know, now that we've got a grounding of you and where you're at, like, yeah, still the Black church needs a lot of, I mean, all of, <laughs> all of the churches really. But um, yeah, that's what we're talking about this week. So I know about exactly a year ago that uh, Minister Ahmad Greenhays, mm-hmm. you and he were talking on Twitter and he created a hashtag. Is that right? Yeah, he and, and several young activists and, and young theologians um, were all on Twitter uh, and he created the Black Church Sex hashtag. They were talking about a few things. They were talking about um, sexual violence in the Black Church. And part of the way that I contributed to that conversation was to talk about the politics of pleasure and whether we had a theology around sexual pleasure in the church. So that conversation went on online and a few, you know, over the course of several months in various Twitter chats under that hashtag. And then in March of this year, Ahmad together with a group of folks from the Black Church Studies Program at Princeton Theological Seminary, created an actual convening uh, and brought together scholars like Kelly Brown Douglas, who wrote this groundbreaking book called Sexuality and the Black Church, uh, myself uh, and some others, to talk about all the politics of sex in the Black Church. Uh, and it you know, was a powerful couple of days of conversation. So I recently had Dr. Joycelyn Elders on the show, and she, one of the things she said, uh, she brought up a couple of times the idea that ministers just really need education, that they don't, they don't know any better, right? Like they're just preaching what they were raised with. Yeah. Do you think that's true? Do you think that they would welcome that education? I do think they need it. I don't think that by and large they would welcome it. I think that many Black ministers are resistant because they feel like the Bible is a rule book. We already know what the rules are, so they tell us. And so everybody's just supposed to follow those rules. And basically, if you follow the rules and you don't have sex outside of marriage, then you don't get AIDS. You don't have any babies that you're not trying to have or any abortions you know, that, that might become necessary. Like They think that that is the salve for all problems. It's just completely unrealistic because, of course, for sexual people, you know, all people are not sexual, right? But like for those of us who actually are sexual, it's clearly ridiculous and you can only regulate people in that way for so long and then eventually folk are going to have some sex. Or it's going to, as we talked about, it's going to drive them into terrible dysfunctional marriages, (laughs) That's right. right. It's going to drive them into terrible dysfunctional marriage or terrible dysfunctional emotional problems. Like one of the things that is most sad to me is when I am doing work in churches or, you know, hanging out with homegirls in churches who, I, I mean, I have homegirls in the church who literally have not been touched 
in a decade, Ugh. in a couple of decades. Like it puts all this pressure on dating, right? Because if you think that you can only have sex during marriage, then every dude that you date, it has to become a marriage, Ugh. right? And so that you can get some, I mean, it's, you know, and any dude with sense is going to run from that right. because that's too much pressure, right? There are these terrible books like, there was some book that they were doing at this church I used to go to where it has like charts and graphs about how much time you're, you know, you should spend alone and when it's okay to touch the person on the knee and when it's okay to share a kiss on the cheek. And I knew grown women who were passing this book around like it was a good idea. And I was like, what? You're, you're going to map your sexuality on a chart? How does that work? Well, and the assumption better there also is that everybody's the same. That's right. But that is the assumption, right? The assumption is that everybody is straight, that everybody wants to be married, and that everybody's sexual desires conform to this very limited idea that evangelical people read in the Bible. So I think that ministers are resistant. And so one of the things that I've tried to do in the bit of work that I've done on this is to move women who are not ministers, but who are just members of churches. And so like one of the things I like to do is in black Christian circles, sisters will say to each other, you know, you want to be holy and you want to do the right thing because you want to find your Boaz. And Boaz is this Old Testament character in the Bible who basically takes in a poor girl named Ruth who is like, gleaning the leftover cotton from his fields. So Boaz has a lot of money and he's very well respected. And so Ruth and her former mother-in-law hatched this plot to get Boaz to marry Ruth. And the way that the story reads in the Bible is that, that Boaz recognizes Ruth and he makes sure that there's always enough cotton left over for her when she goes behind everyone to pick the leftovers. But one night, Ruth goes into Boaz's tent and the way that the language reads, it just says, and she sits at his feet all night. And when he wakes up in the morning, he has to marry her. And you're taught to believe that this is because there's some odd ancient Middle Eastern custom in which if a man falls asleep and a woman is sitting in his tent, when he wakes up, he has to marry her. <laughs> like this is, so this is how people tell this story, right? They literally tell the story as, you know, you want to find your Boaz, your good upstanding man with money who will marry you. And if you're good and you sit at his feet long enough, he'll marry you. That's right. And her mother-in-law was like, you know, look pretty, wait, you know, wait till he gets drunk and passes out in the tent and then go into the tent and sit at his feet. But girl, that's not what the story means. Feet are a euphemism in this time frame for genitals. Really? Yes. So basically it means that she gave him the blowjob of his life. Like, and he was like, I'm marrying her. That's right. And so, <laughs> you know, so this is the kind of stuff that I'll go, you know, when I'm doing this kind of work with women in the church and say, is I'll just point them to a story and look and say to them, since you have to find evidence of this in your Bible, right? Since you don't believe that you can think about this just in terms of how some of us who are not totally using the Bible to live our lives in that way, think about it. Like, look at this story. This story goes against all the things you've been taught about how to build intimate relationships that you want. The dude doesn't approach her. She approaches him. She is not chased. She rolls up in his tent, which is interesting in terms of consent and all that in the modern you know, context. Sure. But she rolls up in his tent and basically puts it on him. 
And then he wakes up and says, I'm going to marry her. So <laughs> when people tell you to go get your Boaz, ask yourself what they really telling you to do, right? And, it all, and look, every time I do this, it makes ladies so mad. It makes church ladies so mad. It makes me so happy. I feel so much glee <laughs> inside. <laughs> I feel like I got hurt when I was asking these questions in church as a 20-something year old by Black women who were sanctimonious, who knew they were right and, so, and who were very resistant to the asking of questions. And so now that I have sort of done some of the work around what my questions are, I would say 90% of it is about helping women get free because I hate, you know, I hate to see the Bible being used to, to do the work of oppression. Right. But, but 10% of it is about my pettiness. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So it's trying to be sensitive to that, but also, you know, trying to, to do this work. You know, I hope to write more about this at some point. And I hope that I do get a chance. Like, I mean, one of the things that I hope will happen in my career uh, at some point is that I will be able to go into churches like the ones that I grew up in and have real conversations with women about how to build intimate lives that matter to them. But there has to be a bit of cultural shift and a bit of opening of the church to, to recognize that there can be a legitimately different perspective than the one that we've always thought was true. And I do think that like conversations like the one Ahmad convened around black church sex is really a step in the right direction. Because, you know, when we took that conversation to Twitter, when Ahmad and crew took it to Twitter, so many young people responded. They are crowdsourcing their theology and their perspectives on church. They're not just getting it from the pulpit anymore. So tell me... Since the black church sex conversation kind of opened up on Twitter and this conference, tell me what you've learned. Mm. One of my favorite moments was watching Kelly Brown Douglas, who really was the like a pioneering scholar around the black church and sexuality, and E. Dewey Smith, who is a pastor of a mega church in Atlanta. There was a, a conversation in, in, during the convening that the two of them had. And what was interesting and compelling in that moment was watching an academic theologian and then a preacher talk to each other. Because these things don't actually happen a lot because preachers think that theologians are too sort of intellectual with all their books. And Mm. theologians typically think preachers are too pragmatic and not theoretical enough and all of that. And so I realized that we, we can all change. Having grown up in the church, I didn't know that there could be a world in which a pastor would actually sit down with a theologian and be willing to change and admit like that there's a problem with homophobia. And and so that pastor, like he admitted, you know, that there's like a problem with homophobia and also that maybe he was wrong to tell grown women that God wants them to be celibate forever in a world where marriage is on the decline. And that that's huge. So I think what I'm learning, I mean, I've been on my own journey around constructing a theology around this for a while, but I think what I'm learning is that this is shifting and that we don't have to throw our faith away because we have radical politics that if we're people of faith or if faith or God in any iteration matters to us, we don't actually have to concede that as ground to the like right wing nut jobs, mm. right? That, <laughs> that we can inhabit that space too and still be radical and still want to dismantle patriarchy and dismantle white supremacy and dismantle heteronormative systems of power. We can want all of those things and perhaps imagine that maybe we have a little bit of divine energy on our side. Ah, yes. Dr. Brittany Cooper, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thank you for having me. It was fun as always. (laughs) 
<laughs> we will definitely be having you back. But until then, where can people find you and follow your work? Find me on Twitter at Professor Crunk. Hit me up on my website, BrittanyCooper.com. Uh, or check me out at Rutgers, where I teach. Yes, go take classes from her. I wish I could. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Uh, you can find me also on Twitter and Facebook at Jacqueline F. Uh, that's J-A-C-L-Y-N-F as in Friedman. You can find also me and all my work and contact information at JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can join in the conversation. Tell us what you think. What were your experiences growing up in the church or whatever religious faith that you were brought up in? Use the hashtag unscrewed. Well, you can also email me unscrewed at JacquelineFriedman.com with ideas for future shows, future guests, what you thought of the show. I love hearing from listeners. You can find this show wherever fine podcasts are available. iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, you name it. If you like us, please, please give us five stars on iTunes. Give us a review. That is how iTunes tells other people to find the show. This podcast is produced by Katie Tandy, who is the creative director at theestablishment.co and edited by yours truly. Our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and the in and out music is by The Pink Tiles. Until next week, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 